0: From KUOW in Seattle, welcome to SoundSide. I'm Libby Dankman. And I'm SoundSide producer Sarah Lipovitz. And Sarah, the SoundSide staff is taking some time off over the holidays, so we thought this would be a great time to look back on some of our favorite stories from the last year.
1: That's right, and we'll hear a story later this hour that I became a little obsessed with earlier this year about a group of doodles in Whatcom County that were found abandoned in the
2: woods. These are folks that have simply decided to get into the dog breeding business only to make money. And that the victims in all of that, of course, are the dogs. That's coming up in about 25 minutes. But first, you know,
1: Libby, I have to admit, I don't think too often about my favorite stories of the year. This is a job that's really fun because you're constantly jumping from story to story, trying to make sure you're on top of the news and feeding the ever-hungry beast that is a daily show.
0: Yeah, but it doesn't leave a lot of time for contemplation.
1: Yeah, exactly. If I'm lucky, I remember what I produced last week, let alone in January. But that just makes it feel really special when a story does stick with you. Like this first story on how local churches are reconsidering their property. I met so many kind and thoughtful people throughout this story that we're trying to decide, as membership and funding wane,
0: what is the best use for church properties? Let's take a listen.
3: Hi,
4: I'm Pastor Anariki and I am the pastor of St. John United Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. The church was actually started before 1955 by Danish immigrants uh, in the Central District, and then they moved up here, and this building was built in 1955. Around the walls are stained glass windows one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine stained glass windows. You know, these stained glass windows have a life of maybe 60 years, and they're about 50 years old. <laughs> and that elevator is about 20 years old which means it's nearing the time when it needs to be modernized. And you know, a new elevator's maybe $100,000, $150,000. So we have an organ, Uh, you know, organs need to be refurbished. That's maybe a few hundred thousand dollars again. We don't have the resources to continue doing church this way.
1: St. John United Lutheran Church in Finney Ridge is at a crossroad. That's how Pastor Anna Rieke described it in a message sent out to church congregants and everyone else who uses the building, including me. I'm a member of the pea patch that sits at the back of the property. $30 a year gets me a plot of earth that is a relatively minuscule piece of St. John's land. The church takes up a full city block with a large parking lot, as well as the garden space and a three-story building. So, on a Sunday afternoon after church, I stop by for a state-of-the-property presentation.
4: And a lot of really good stewardship of this property has already taken place. So our hope is to continue that by sharing more information with more of you. Uh, So any questions before we get started?
1: Pastor Anna stands in front of a room of around 15 people, along with the church's property committee. They're here to explain how the building and surrounding property are doing. They say that the building is in good condition, but financially, it's just not sustainable.
4: But what we don't want is for conversations about our future to be only about the property. This is also about the worshiping community, the community that gathers around here, and how we'll shape that in the future. So it's not just a how do we pay for the building question. So I hope you'll just keep that in mind.
1: St. John is shrinking. On the books, Pastor Anna says they have 110 people in their worship community. At services every Sunday, it's more like 25 to 35. Our congregation, we're all aging. (laughs)
4: But um, in a small congregation like this, with folks who are already in the later years of life, a good portion of them, we've lost some really key members. So we already had... That sort of slow decline of attendance, which is true across our society. And the pandemic, you know, froze that no in-person worship or events. And then not everybody came back, you know, or people found other
1: ways to connect while church membership may be dwindling, Pastor Anna says there are lots of people who use the building every day. There's a local choir that meets here, and so do groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. There's also a free hot meal program. And part of the building is also rented out to nonprofit organizations, like an environmental-based ministry program, as well as the Lutheran bishop's office. But a dwindling congregation means dwindling tithes, and the property is just too expensive for them to keep up with.
4: The rising cost of staff, which is directly connected with the rising cost of living in our city, and the cost of managing this building, our worshiping community is just too small to continue that right? So we don't have the people resources or financial resources to do that for much longer unless we rethink things.
1: The church isn't sure what it will do right now, but whatever it decides, it will definitely mean a big change. And that's nerve-wracking. For some of the congregants, this isn't the first time they've dealt with these issues. This is Ellen Beck. I came from
3: another church, Bethany, over by Green Lake. And It closed because there weren't enough people to carry on. And
1: then I came here. (laughs) Pastor Ana does have some ideas for what comes next.
4: I think my dream would be to find a way for this property to be managed by the people who use it and still centering those who most need this space and who who, uh, have far fewer options in the city what's offered here. Um, But we'll see. There has to be an appetite for that and the resources
1: behind it to make that happen. But for her, rethinking things is a question that's bigger than just how does the church maintain its property? It's an opportunity to understand and plan for the future of organized religion in America. I think Seattle's on the cutting edge of a national
5: problem.
4: (laughs) I mean, really, you know, um, there are large portions of the country where They're maybe seeing that decline, but it's not as much of an existential crisis. Um, But the church is no longer the same center of community life that it was. So a new model has to take into account, one, how many people are engaging with church, and also the different ways people are engaging with church. So I would love to see my denomination come up with some really bold, justice-centered, faithful, best practices in this new climate. Because uh, some people, for example, will still say, well, we need new members. That's just not um, That's not realistic. You're not going to get enough new members to prop up this old model. And I don't think it's ethical. <laughs> you know, I think that's rooted in colonization. I don't think we should be out there... Um, trying to convert people if they're not up for it. And, and a lot of people clearly aren't. So, yeah, so I would love to see us get more serious about how do you plan to shrink or change or share your resources in a way that impacts people outside of you and is a more sustainable model.
1: Seattle is not known for being a religious town. Multiple clergy members I spoke with referred to Seattle as the nun zone. As in, when asked by a survey what religion they are, a lot of people here check that nun box. In a Gallup poll from 2017, that nun number was 47% of the adult population in Washington. Can the city, known for a lack of religion, be the place where these organizations build new models, like Pastor Anna said? Can a place defined by what it's not, religious, be the space where religious organizations figure out what they're for going forward? Pastor Anna and her congregation are just getting started with working out what their church is going to look like in the future. Other churches are further along in the process. St. Luke's Episcopal Church is just a 10-minute drive from St. John's, in the middle of downtown Ballard. Like St. John, the church spans a full city block, 55,000 square feet of land. Currently, there are 10 buildings on the campus. And that includes an old chapel, a new chapel, a community garden, cottages where students at the local theological seminary, the Seattle School, can stay, and a community feeding program called Edible Hope. Soon, they'll all be torn down. Reverend Canon Britt Olson is the vicar at St. Luke's. She says what's replacing it is something vital to the community, housing.
3: We're planning for our next 100 years here in the center of Ballard. And in order to plan to do that, we are going to be building two eight-story buildings, one which will be all affordable housing for people making 30 to 60% of the area median income, and one which will be mixed market rate and affordable workforce housing, as well as a brand new space all on one level for our congregation and for our ministries and for other people in the community to use this beautiful new space. Unlike St.
1: John, the congregation at St. Luke's has actually grown in recent years. But even so, Canon Britt says maintenance for these old buildings is too expensive. Just bringing their old chapel up to ADA accessibility requirements would cost $1.5 million. It just didn't pencil out.
3: And that caused us to enter a year-long process of visioning and dreaming and talking to all the constituents of our congregation. And after a year of visioning, we came up with our essential um, items for what we would want in a redevelopment process, which included holding on to our ground, which has been bequeathed to us by our ancestors in the faith who have gone before us and and sacrificed to get us this land. it also included building as much affordable housing as possible to serve the needs of our neighbors. And it also included having as much flexible and multi-purpose space to uh, continue our real openness and permeability to the community for use by other churches, but mostly by other community groups. And that's something we do already, and we wanted to continue and expand that.
1: The project is expected to break ground in late fall, and St. Luke's will keep its land. Two developers, one working in affordable housing, the other in market rate, will lease that land from them for the next hundred years. The developers will run the housing, the church will receive ground lease rent, and in a hundred years, they can all reconsider how to move forward. Canon Britt says the change will be life-giving.
3: I know how hard it is to maintain this property and all these buildings that are falling down, and I know how much money it costs. This frees up money for real mission for real purpose, for feeding people, for offering affordable childcare in our church space, for offering programs for people to learn English as a second language, for whatever needs this community might have in the future. We want it to be a gift, this building to be a gift to the future. St. Luke started thinking
1: about this revisioning process early, back in 2017. If things go to plan, it'll be done in 2025. That's eight years of talking, planning, visioning, revisioning. Barbara Wilson is the chair of the property steward development team at St. Luke's. She says that St. Luke's receives calls from churches all over the country looking to do similar projects with their property.
3: I think the first question people always ask is how do you even get started and how do you keep your congregation together? And the visioning process that Britt talked about was critical for that. Every one of our people was involved in that. And so everybody is was involved in the decisions that we made going forward. And we've used that process, um, the results of that process, to judge every decision we've had to make along the way. And there have been a ton of them.
1: I saw the specs for the new buildings St. Luke's is creating. These are big, eight-story buildings, 206 apartments total. It's a lot of new housing for the neighborhood it's also a big change aesthetically. Gone will be the old chapel, the 10 kind of old but cute buildings spread across the campus. It's a big change. And a big bet that doing this will be what the congregation needs to survive, as well as what's best for the community at large. But Michael Trice says it's not actually a new idea.
6: The sacred texts, not just in the Christian tradition, but across the kind of religious, uh, moral codes of conduct gives a preferential option to those who are marginalized in your communities, to widows and orphans, uh, to those who are voiceless and who have less power than yourself.
1: Michael is a professor and director at Seattle University's Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement. He's also an evangelical Lutheran pastor. He says churches are at their best when they help those in need.
6: I mean, this is a staple—not just, I would say, morally, but existentially. Like, this is something that should be written across the banisters of any of these organizations or churches that we're talking about. The clergy and lay people who are trained theologically in this are aware of where these codes of context, like DNA, in the texts and the worship services. In the structures where they worship themselves uh, every every week, so in many ways, what they're doing is actually a kind of religious reclamation. They're just going back. It's getting re-rooted.
1: Changing the way your church looks or the way it works won't be popular with everyone, but Michael says that's not really the point.
6: It will mean. Some of these congregate, many of these congregations, many of these religious organizations will get smaller. But if we interpret the strength of a religious community by the size of the people in it, by its quantity, we'll have missed what the quality is of what they're actually bringing uh, to the world. And, you know, the the investment that they're making in the community is that the, that the, the quality of what they're bringing to other people's lives will pay dividends into the future in that way. And yeah, they trust that.
1: Michael also acknowledges that there are other reasons that people may not be crowding to church. Historically, churches haven't been comfortable or welcoming places for many people. Reaching the people they want to help will have to be done with care and humility.
6: I mean, we see we see where there is pain and those who are adherents of a particular religion um, owe a burden of apology to another people or community. And the problem is that the people who were harmed, uh, their ears to hear, and the people who did the harming over those generations, those voices to actually utter the apology are no longer with us, right? So organizations and the descendants have to discover together how we're going to vocalize And hear one another and we have a deep moral and existential responsibility to do that well because the future depends on us it relies on us to do it if we don't we'll repeat the past we know that as human beings we do that so i i know this is a long answer but i think it's a tremendously important question because at heart of it is in fact can i trust can i trust those smaller organizations who tell me they wanna help provide housing to marginalized communities, if I know they've been a part of a history where they didn't wanna provide safe spaces to my people or the people of others' people. And my response is, you have to look in the history and find their apologies and what they did next. And I think providing housing is a part of what they did next.
1: But not every church is in the same boat. For some, bringing community back isn't just dependent on apologies or rethinking a religious structure. It's also about physically bringing the community back, something some churches are uniquely suited to do.
7: It is where Black community finds itself. And it it's where even a fractured Black community now that we have uh, in, in central Seattle um, is still there. It it, it is there by uh, either either via online attendance or traveling the 20 to 30 miles from a displaced uh, family back to their center, back to their church, back to their traditional community to worship together. Uh, This has been a role of the church. This has been a role of the church in establishing Black communities after the Great Migration. Uh, in urban centers, and it is still the role of helping to keep those communities together.
1: Donald King is president and CEO of the Nehemiah Initiative Seattle.
7: We're a faith-based development initiative, and our mission is to disrupt the displacement of the African-American community from urban centers and support the retention of what is the historically Black faith-based organizations in central Seattle. And we do that through the development of affordable homes, community spaces, and business places on the underutilized property of those faith-based organizations.
1: Donald says as gentrification pushed Black residents out of places like the Central District.
7: Churches also began to fail because their congregation was being displaced and no longer living in the neighborhood. Churches found themselves in a position to say, you know, well, what do we do now?
1: Many of the churches that were left behind are what Donald describes as property rich but cash poor. Like St. John, they're sitting on land that is often paid off and extremely valuable. Plus, as religious institutions, they don't pay property taxes, but they don't have much in actual cash savings. Donald says this is a chance to use that property wealth to better the community and for local churches to consider taking on a new mission.
7: The major source of, of wealth in in our country, is through the ownership of homes, and and black families had barriers for uh, decades, if not centuries, from being able to own property through racially restrictive covenants, through redlining, uh, through uh, urban renewal, and 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 other barriers that were presented. Uh, how can the church now take this on as as a new social justice issue? How can this become a new uh, mission for the church in finding ways to? provide home ownership opportunities in closing that wealth gap, uh, providing generational wealth for Black families by ownership of of their home.
1: The Nehemiah Initiative helps participating churches set up land trusts on their property. What exactly that looks like depends on the location and the church. But in most cases, the actual church building will remain, while apartments or single-family homes are built around them on the property. These will be affordable homes sold to Black families. Those families will own the space they live in, but like St. Luke's, the church will own the land. There are currently two churches in the pre-development phase with the initiative, and three more waiting to begin. Donald says they'll all be in pre-development by the end of this year.
7: Now we know we have the property. We know we have a number of willing church leaders that want to get engaged and involved in this. We have faith. That we will be able to take this on, as I said, as as a new mission for the Black Church. Not only the the affordable homes for retaining more African Americans in the central city, for inviting and possibly getting more to come back to the city for affordability, but to also help close that wealth gap and provide intergenerational wealth through home ownership. Uh, this is our next big challenge uh, in in our. Um, Restorative justice is what I call it.
1: Donald is optimistic their model will spread. But he says the idea hasn't always been an easy sell for local congregations.
7: This is property that was hard won. This is property that was purchased from offerings from the congregation. This is property in redlined neighborhoods where you couldn't borrow uh, money to purchase property. So, uh, and with the history of loss of property, and that is still in decline in the Black community, Uh, it is very difficult for them to talk about the use of their property in a way that could be lost for their use.
1: Even with the promise of the help that this could bring to some, change is still a form of loss for others. St. John United Lutheran Church is built on the bones of the churches that came before it. It was founded as the merging of two separate churches. And walking through the building, Pastor Anna points out a silver communion set from a church that's closed. Pews built six years ago for another space, across from another. You know, we don't
4: even use the silver set every week anymore because it takes a lot of effort to set up and to clean and to care for. Or these pews, like we talk about it would be easier to have chairs because we'd be more flexible and uh, we could have other people rent the space because it would be easier to use. But then what happens to all these pews? A couple dozen big, beautifully
1: made, wooden upholstered pews,
4: where are they going?
1: Where are they going to go? Changing the way churches operate could be the key for better serving congregants and the broader community. But it also means letting go. That's hard for clergy like Pastor Anna, who are unsure what their role looks like in a smaller, less centralized church. I love parish ministry, I really love it, and I want to
4: keep doing it. I also don't want to get in the way uh, when, when the Spirit's moving and, and new things are happening. So I try to stay, I try to really enjoy every moment and uh, And I I don't know what the future holds. I I could be here for two more years, I could be here for
1: 15 more years, depending on what happens, and I try to hold it lightly. It's also hard for the current congregants, like Barbara Reed.
5: Oh, well, I'm a traditionalist. I'd love to see everything continue the way it is. (laughs) There are two things I would miss the most, and that's the regular opportunity to meet with my friends, as I do on Sundays. And the garden, which is a part of the physical portion of the church.
4: You wonder, oh, this friend's not here anymore. You know, why is that where they go? Um, and I think that also started even earlier for a lot of folks who saw their kids not continue in the faith in the way maybe they hoped or expected. So I think it's been a long, slow grieving process uh, And I also think we aren't, for our church, there's more to come. And so it's good we're excited now, but it's going to get harder. Because there's going to be tough choices to make. And there's a lot of pride in this place. People have taken really good care
1: of this property. So yeah, it's going to get harder.
4: It's going to get harder.
1: Saying goodbye to the traditions you've grown up with, to a way of practicing you've grown up with, requires a form of grieving and of saying goodbye. But that pride, of place, of tradition, is also what spurs these churches onward. That belief that the church is important in whatever form it takes.
5: I am feeling like a broken record because one of the things that's important to me that people realize in the process is that we can still be An organization, a church, without a building or with a whole different vision of what a church building is. And I think we're headed in the right direction.
1: I'm Sarah Leibovitz. You're listening to Soundside.
0: That story first aired on Soundside in May. We'll be right back on KUOW. You're listening to SoundSide. I'm Libby Dankman, And I'm producer Sarah Leibovitz. And today on the show, we're revisiting some of our favorite stories from the last year. Sarah, today we're focusing on pieces that you've produced this year. What are we about to hear? Yeah, this is the
1: story of doodles. Now, on a base level, it's about a group of doodles, you know, the, the cute, adorable puppies that were found abandoned in the woods in Whatcom County. But what interested me was the question behind that abandonment. How do we create and maintain
0: humane breeding standards for dogs here in Washington state? Okay, let's dive in. At the end of August, some Whatcom County residents noticed a pack of furry creatures running wild in the woods. They weren't bears or cougars or even coyotes. They were doodles. You know, poodle mixes. Lots of them.
2: Our animal control department started receiving calls uh, one day About abandoned dogs, and there were a couple different spots these dogs were being reported in, but all in a very similar uh, region of the east part of our county up here. We took in five or six from one location. A couple hours later, we would get a couple more from a different location, about a quarter of a mile away.
0: That's Laura Clark, executive director of the Whatcom County Humane Society. The dogs were in bad shape. It was obvious they had been abandoned. Then, a week or two later, it happened again. And over the course of two weeks, we ended up with 21 of these dogs. You've seen a doodle before. They're everywhere. The curly-haired mixes have exploded in popularity in recent years because of their supposedly hypoallergenic coat and cute, teddy bear-like appearance that plays well on social media. And the rising demand for specialty dogs like Doodles has prompted a boom in backyard breeders. And that, explains Laura Clark with Whatcom Humane, is also the reason 21
2: so-called designer dogs were found abandoned in the woods. Besides just being matted with sticks and dirt and skin scrapings all over them, Filthy. They were also shut down emotionally, so it was very hard to handle them because it became really clear very quickly that they had not been around humans a lot. So when we see that type of an animal in a large-scale case like this, we think puppy mill, or we think backyard breeder, and that's really where we, we went immediately with this case.
8: Hmm.
0: Okay, so you talk about the fact that you zeroed in on the idea of these dogs coming from a backyard breeder operation. Why is that? What are the elements of this case that make you believe that?
2: Well, the condition of the animals being so consistent, the number of animals, the fact that we received them in such a large quantity so close together uh, was just the first indication. I mean, these, these weren't just stray dogs that were just somebody left a gate open and, and they lost their dog. I mean, yes, that does happen, and every once in a while dogs run in you know, packs of three or four, but the fact that we were receiving them in five, six, seven, eight numbers at a time all in the same uh, physical condition, emotional condition condition led us to believe that uh, some backyard breeder or a, a puppy mill type operation had either left town quickly or ha- couldn't couldn't move the merchandise, as they refer to it, um, and they had either let the dogs go or driven them purposely to different locations and dropped them off, which is really deplorable to think about. Unfortunately, it happens more than people realize.
0: And I want to get into that in just a second. I'm just curious. So doodles is kind of a catch-all term for poodle hybrids. Do you know if these were like Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, Schnoodles,
2: Cockapoos, Boxer Doodles, any of the uh, above? <laughs> so Yes, 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 and yes. Um, we think, to the best of our guessing, uh, they the majority were some type of Burner Doodle, which would be a Bernese Mountain Dog Doodle, Ozzie Doodle, an Australian Shepherd um, Poodle, uh, some Labradoodle, Lab Poodle, And then a weird hybrid of various breeds um, were a few of them. So they were doodles and then some.
0: What are the laws around backyard dog breeding? If you're doing this at home or, you know, in a semi-commercial space, I mean, what kinds of regulations exist to govern this, this practice?
2: Sure. Sadly, in Washington state, you know, like all states in our country, the laws haven't caught up with um, animal welfare. Um, Washington state actually has a pretty strong puppy mill law that um, governs how animals in large scale breeding operations must be housed if there are over 50 dogs in uh, that type of operation. And we're not talking about really responsible breeders that are breeding for breed standards. That, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about operations, either backyard breeders or people that are running um, just what we call puppy mill, what you hear in the media, puppy mill operations, just simply to sell animals as commodities for money. Usually these breeders... Know the law, and they know how to to skirt right over the legal um, requirements, and that what is that's what's so frustrating for animal control and law enforcement because people know they know exactly what they have to do to not get themselves in trouble, and it just is mind numbing. I mean, what are the
0: kinds of requirements that they're working around? I mean, it just strikes me as crazy that this type of practice, breeding these dogs and then abandoning them, would be legal. Is that is it really they can just breed them and and dump them and and everything's okay under the law?
2: Not particularly. It you know animals are. It's required by law that animals receive basic uh, food, water, shelter, veterinary care. Um, what's difficult is to prove that these animals were purposely neglected. Now based on their condition, yes, we're going to say these animals were purposefully neglected and ignored. Proving that is a whole different ballgame. And that's where it can become frustrating because the public, of course, is up in arms about this, as anyone would be. But proving who did it and why they did it and holding them accountable becomes a whole different ballgame.
0: What does that investigation look like?
2: It's been a, a long grind for the past couple of weeks. Really kudos to the Whatcom Humane Society's animal control team because they have uh, done a deep dive into the, the large volume of um, doodle breeders in uh, Whatcom County as well as the uh, neighboring counties. We've narrowed down uh, some suspected backyard-type breeders, um, and what we are doing now is we are actually doing DNA testing on the doodles that we had received. Um, And we've also contacted uh, citizens who have come forward who have purchased dogs from some of these um, breeders who have offered up their dogs DNA. Our goal is that we can link that these dogs are related and then we can look um, and work with our friends at the prosecutor's office and see what legally can be done to hold them accountable.
0: So if you do use these DNA tests and track down exactly where the abandoned doodles came from, What kind of penalties could the breeders potentially face for abandoning them?
2: You know, that's a really great question. It goes to, can we prove that they purposely did that? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. that. That's Uh, a question for the prosecutor's office, but we certainly can go down the road of some animal cruelty charges, hopefully, uh, because of the condition these animals were were found in, their medical needs, grooming needs, or lack of grooming is what they had when we found them. So we're hoping that we can get some type of legal justice for these dogs. Honestly, I'm not sure we ever will. Um, The real justice here is that the dogs that we found uh, that came into our care, uh, of course, we want to do right by them and place them into permanent, responsible, and loving homes. And, and we've managed to do that. So it's a, it's a victory in that regard. I'm not sure whether we are going to get the, the true victory that we want to see in this, which is to shut operations like this down.
0: Yeah, accountability and, and stopping it from happening a- again. Um, yes. How widespread are backyard breeding operations like this in Whatcom County or, you know, in Washington state?
2: Well, I can speak for my county here, Whatcom County, and sadly, they're they're everywhere. Uh, it seemed to get worse during the pandemic, especially with this particular breed of the doodle. Um Everybody, we talked about the pandemic dogs, everybody went out and got themselves a dog and we, we don't begrudge do- you know, any dog a home. Every dog needs a home regardless of where they came from, but it seems like the doodle craze, and that's really what it was or is still, became very prevalent over the past two and three years and that then caused people to go out and decide that they were going to get in the quote unquote doodle business of breeding these dogs. Again, I want to make it very clear, these are not responsible breeders that we're talking about. There are really, really responsible dog breeders who are breeding for all the right reasons in, in our community and in our state. These are folks that have simply decided to get into the dog breeding business only to make money. And that, the victims in all of that, of course, are the dogs.
3: Yeah.
0: And it's clear they don't have a regard for these dogs' welfare. I mean, they're dumping them in the forest. So, yeah, I think it's clear there's a, there's a separation here between responsible breeders and the practices that we're seeing here with these abandoned dogs in Whatcom County. You know, if somebody is in the market for a dog and they've decided that they want to buy a dog from a breeder instead of adopting one, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> share my bias, which is that you should always adopt if you can, but um, what kinds of considerations should somebody have when they're looking for a responsible breeder?
2: That's a really great question, and again, of course we want to say adopt, don't shop, but sometimes that doesn't work out for somebody um you know they are they are looking for a specific dog for a specific reason, they love a particular breed or they're looking for a, a dog to to do agility with or or whatever. So they reach out to a breeder. There's a couple really simple things that people can do. First and foremost, any responsible breeder is going to invite you to their home or their breeding kennel. They're going to introduce you to the, the mother of the dog, of the puppy you're interested in. In many cases, the father is also there. They're going to show you veterinary records. They're going to show you health certificates because a good responsible breeder is going to have all of that. They're going to say, yes. Come look at how these dogs are housed, how they're being cared for. Come meet them. In many cases, a breeder will choose a puppy for you based on what you're looking for. An irresponsible backyard breeder or somebody that's just breeding for profit, usually are never going to allow you to do those things. They're going to tell you to meet in a parking lot of a supermarket or a mall, or they're going to have a really fancy website, but you're never going to see an address for that website. So there's a lot of red flags um, if you're seeing that. If you reach out to somebody and they say, I'll meet you somewhere, or I don't have any health records. Those things you're going to want to go, wait, that doesn't seem right. You can also contact the AKC and see, do they have any record of this breeder? The American Kennel Club. Absolutely. Do a little research and make sure that you are getting a healthy dog, uh, a dog from somebody who knows what they're doing, and any breeder, any responsible breeder is going to make a commitment to that dog. So if it doesn't work out, they're going to take that dog back.
0: Laura, how have you seen the explosion of backyard breeding change the shelter system in recent years?
2: Well, I have been at the Whatcom Humane Society for over 20 years. Before that, I worked at a large shelter in the San Francisco Bay Area. and. If people had told me pre-COVID that we were going to be in the situation we're in now, I think I, I wouldn't have believed them. I mean, we had we in Washington State especially had made such progress in animal welfare and reducing pet overpopulation that, for example, up here at Whatcom Humane, where we're an open admission shelter and the animal control provider, in 2018-19, we had kennel space for days we would be able to take animals and rehabilitate them and rehome them and do amazing work and now with pet overpopulation, with the the increase in breeding operations, we have been over capacity for 16 straight months. It is as if animal welfare and pet overpopulation has taken not only just a step back, but a decade back. And in talking with my colleagues all over the state, everybody is seeing the same thing. It's really a troubling time for animal welfare in regards to pet overpopulation and it it can sometimes seem very demoralizing because we we worked so hard to get where we were and now we're taking steps backwards and it's just it's not what we want to see. We want to turn this around and get back going in the right direction.
0: Yeah, it's just heartbreaking to hear because it's so difficult for your staff to provide care when you're over capacity and nobody wants to see animals suffer in any way. I'm curious. So driving this is the pandemic era of everybody wanting to adopt. And then we're kind of in the downslope of that where a lot of those dogs are getting abandoned. But then you also had the breeders stepping in and seeing this demand for animals. And then the breeders are overbreeding. I mean, is that there's there's overall just more pets in the system than there were before the pandemic?
2: Yeah, I think it's a perfect storm. I think, uh, you know, every shelter you go to is going to see, you're going to walk through the dog kennels or the cat kennels, depending. You're going to see a lot of uh, young adult animals, two and three years old, that people went out and either adopted or purchased, however they got them. When they were puppies during the pandemic, life has gotten back to normal, whatever that is. Life has changed. A family is no longer um, interested in, in keeping that animal. So those animals are flooding uh, rescue groups. and animal shelters. You have a combination of these designer breed dogs like the Doodles um, being bred and sold because they're adorable and cute. Uh, They're then flooding animal welfare groups and rescues. And then you have the economic issues with housing. Um, It is really hard to afford housing in Washington State, and especially with pet deposits and um, security deposits and all that, people can no longer afford to pay those deposits Uh, to be able to have have animals in their their homes or their apartments. So we're seeing that increase as well. So it truly is a perfect storm. And then you combine that with many of our wonderful low-cost or free spay-neuter clinics that were operating pre-pandemic are no longer in existence. And so affordable veterinary care has also become a barrier for people. And Mm. so it's just a lot of variables are playing into this.
0: Everything comes back to the housing crisis. This is my theory about the news and the issues that we face, the problems in society. So much comes back to affordable housing issues. Are people also just looking for different things in a dog now than they were, say, five years ago?
2: Uh, You know, everybody wants a perfect dog. Who doesn't? Everybody wants a dog you can go to the brewery with or the coffee house with or the dog park with and yeah those dogs do exist. You have to put work into getting them. Um, but when people got dogs during the pandemic, the breweries weren 't open. The coffee houses weren 't open and so now we 're left with a, a sort of a population of dogs that don 't have real great social skills and now that life has gone back to normal. Dogs are acting a little bit different, just like kids are going back to school. And so in this society where people want everything immediately, they want immediate gratification, they don't want to put the time and work into to the dog that suddenly doesn't want to go everywhere mom and dad want to go. And so those animals find themselves abandoned. And you're right, it does go back to housing as well. It's just such a frustrating situation.
0: I know the investigation is still going on to try to track down where exactly these doodles came from that were abandoned, 21 doodles in Whatcom County. But let's end on a positive note here, Laura. Where are those dogs now and how are they doing compared to that terrible condition that you found them in?
2: You bet. Well, thanks to the amazing work of the volunteers and our staff up here at Whatcom Humane Society, um, all the dogs were immediately groomed and and taken care of, uh, their medical needs taken care of. We reached out to several of our rescue partners. And in animal welfare, it does take a village. And and we are lucky that we have a great one here in Washington State. So many of our rescue partners stepped up and took in some of those dogs. Our friends at Seattle Humane in in, uh, Bellevue took 10 of them. Uh, There's other rescue groups here in Whatcom county that took dogs, and then many adopters um, from all over the state came in and adopted dogs. So as of today, we are doodle-free at the Whatcom Humane Society, and that's a good day. We celebrate that for sure.
0: I love to hear it, and I hope all the other doggies and kitties and all your animals at the Whatcom County Humane Society also find homes very soon. My own dog is from the Pasadena, California Humane Society. So I just love the work that you do. And Monty, my dog, loves the work that you do. Um, Laura, thank you very much. Laura Clark is executive director of the Whatcom County Humane Society. Thank you. Thank you. So these 21 doodles have reached a happy ending, but they're just
8: the tip of the iceberg. As soon as people realized there was a demand for a dog like that, then every puppy mill, unethical breeder, greedy entrepreneur breeder type just started mushing uh, these dogs together.
0: That's Madeline Bernstein, president of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Los Angeles and the author of the book Designer Dogs, an expose inside the criminal underworld of crossbreeding. She told me that the Labradoodle, a Labrador first mixed with a poodle for the purposes of creating a guide dog back in the 1980s, is what first started the trend of designer dogs. More and more purebred mixes were developed, feeding what Madeline calls a consumerist mindset that a dog should be a perfect accessory. For doodles, part of the allure is that they're advertised as hypoallergenic, which
8: Madeline says is not actually possible. There's no such thing as a hypoallergenic dog. None. Zero. Zilch. What there are are some dogs whose hair um, is a little bit more wiry. Uh, Terriers have some. Poodles have some of this kind of hair that are less irritating to people who are allergic to dogs, but they're not hypoallergenic. But this goes
0: beyond whether a dog's coat makes your eyes water. The demand for these extremely Instagrammable breeds, like teacup poodles or miniature Australian shepherds, can lead to genetic issues. Madeline says you can look at the original Labradoodle as an example.
8: You're inbreeding the Labradoodle mixes because you like the way they look, so you keep inbreeding and overbreeding the two original dogs. And so what you have as a result are all the hip problems of the Labrador. You have um, some heart problems, knee problems. You can have mental problems, OCD problems of the poodles. You mix them all together and you get this one big dog that may look adorable, but has tons of medical problems. And people aren't going to pay for five, six, dollars dollars $10,000 for them.
0: Madeline says this is an issue of little to no regulation in the United States. No one's watching to make sure that these breeding operations are safe and ethical. But it's also become a global issue. Even if the U.S. did start to regulate breeding standards, dogs could still be shipped in from other countries that don't have the same laws. Ultimately, according to Madeline Bernstein with SBCLA, it's up to consumers to stop the demand for these designer pooches.
8: If you want a designer dog, I mean, 25 percent of the shelter populations in the country have always been. um, We can't tell you they're purebreds, but they have always appeared to be. And that's because people are turning them in or leaving them in the forest. Just stop. Let's not create the demand and then the suppliers will go off and get greedy over something else.
0: That story first aired in October. Thank you for listening to this holiday edition of Soundside. Today, the show is produced by Sarah Leibovitz, with support from Noel Gaska, Alec Cowan, Hans Anderson, and Jason Burrows. Soundside's editor is Jed Kim, and I'm Libby Denkman. It does take a lot of folks to get this show on air and online every day. Our logo art is designed by Tio Popescu. Hans Twight produces our promos. Our community engagement team is Zeki Hamid, Kamna Shastri, and Alex Rochester. And our director of new content and innovation, a.k.a. our boss, is Brendan Sweeney. And we want to hear from you. Do you have thoughts or questions about the show or a story that you've heard or a suggestion for something you'd like us to cover on the show? What stories should we be taking a look at in our own backyard in the Pacific Northwest? Send us an email at soundside at dot Again, that's soundside at You can also join our listener network where we'll ask you for thoughts on upcoming segments. That's at KUOW.org slash SoundSide. And if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we love to hear your voice. That number is 206-221-3213. We'll be back tomorrow with more SoundSide right here on KUOW.